Hello, world. Welcome to the Soapbox Redemption Podcast. The big questions serve with swagger. I'm Andrew, and I'll be your host as we embark on this journey together. This episode features a conversation with Vance Morgan. Vance is a professor of philosophy at Providence College in Providence, Rhode Island, where he has taught for the past 27 years. He is award-winning teacher and author of five books, most recently Freelance Christianity, and prayer for people who don't believe in God. He blogs at Freelance Christianity at Patheos. In this podcast, Vance and I discussed his writing and what it means to be a freelance Christian. We talked about the philosopher's gene that we both share, the importance of nonconformity, and how our perspectives have definitely ruffled feathers, both religiously and politically. We dove into some of the big questions like whether or not the idea of God is even reasonable, and how a philosophically inclined Christian moves from the idea of the God of the philosophers to the triune God of Christianity. We also talked about how a philosophically inclined Christian may interpret the Bible and went into some deep topics like Old Testament ethics, hell, consciousness, and the soul. Vance is very intelligent, but also very personal and served up some complex topics in a very warm and accessible way. I'm confident you'll be impressed by his epistemological humility and depth, just as I was. So please, enjoy the conversation between yours truly and Vance Morgan. Vance, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have another Patheos neighbor on the podcast. For those that, that don't know, Vance and I both blog on the Patheos channel. And actually, Vance, we, al- we also both published our uh, second books with the same publisher in 2017. So shameless plug there for both Meta and Freelance Christianity. Wow. There you go. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> Small world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the, the the more I learned about Vance, the more excited I've been for this conversation, not only because he's a philosopher with an interest in the big questions, but also a self-described freelance Christian, which I, I really want to get into in this conversation. But but maybe, Vance, before we get into some of those big questions, can you tell us a little about yourself personally and how you developed an affinity for philosophy and, and maybe how you came to chose it as a profession? Sure, sure. I... Um I often describe myself as having been born a philosopher, but I didn't realize it and probably until my <laughs> middle 20s or, or, or early 30s. I, uh, I was born, uh, my, my father was a Baptist minister. I was born into a very um, specific fundamentalist, evangelical Baptist tradition, but I was a questioner from the time that I was uh, very small. And after going to college, after getting my bachelor's degree and having several years because life happened, uh, a a marriage, two children, a failed marriage, um, I didn't get back to graduate school for many years after that. And when I did get back to graduate school, I actually had a year's worth of law school and hated it. 
And when I realized that this wasn't where I belonged, I thought to myself, what did I love? What did I appreciate the most out of my undergraduate experience several years ago? And I realized that philosophy was a place that I felt very much at home. I tell my students Mm -hmm. that um, after close to 30 years now of being a philosophy professor, that I finally have decided on a go-to definition for philosophy. And I define philosophy as the art of better and better questioning. And that's something I've always wanted to do. And it's something that I now as a professor that I get the opportunity to give other people uh, the freedom, the opportunity to develop that questioning capacity as well. And so I'm a philosopher because of my questioner. I'm a philosopher because I am comfortable with open-endedness. I am comfortable with doubt. I'm comfortable with um, challenging preconceptions. What has been interesting, and this is where my blog came from starting about 10 years ago, is how does that energy, how does philosophical energy engage with my equally strong commitment to being a person of faith? So that, that's more or less where it comes from. Yeah, kindred spirits, um, Vance. Uh, so many things you said there. Myself, I, I think I even wrote that too. I said I, I think I always wa- was a philosopher, at least a hobbyist, and just didn't realize it, um, which is why I pissed so many people off. Yes. Um, <laughs> and um, and actually, that's it's funny. Your freelance Christian, um, both book label resonated on so many reasons for me because I was born uh, uh, raised Catholic although my mother is Greek Orthodox and my uh, my grandfather Papu the Greek word for grandfather always said something to me as I was growing up on um, just the value of, of 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 our shared beliefs it's sort of an ecumenical bend um, and then my wife's family uh, being evangelical and Protestant and then my scientific background, and then me finding philosophy. You can imagine lots of interesting in-law and, and family conversations sure. over the years, sure. uh, not not to mention my grandmother being a Carmelite nun, of all things. So <laughs> I started asking very difficult questions in uh, junior high, high school, and then uh, I went through um, engineering and then came back to philosophy, but but always was asking big, big questions as long as I can remember. But But maybe we start there, like, what does that term mean for you? freelance Christian and for, for our listeners, because it I think it resonates with a lot, but I, I'd love to hear you unpack that. Sure. It, it, my deciding on that as the, um, first of all, as the title of my blog, and then my first of two books that have emerged from that blog, um, is more or less along the lines of, well, I remember having a conversation with my wife. Um, when I finally decided, and we can talk about this or not later on, I, I resisted being a blogger for a long time. Hmm. And once I decided that the type of writing that I was doing really apparently belonged in that sort of uh, genre, I came up with a couple of possible titles. And one of mm-hmm. them was Agnostic Christianity. And my wife said, nobody's going to read that. And she, she undoubtedly was right. And uh, so freelance Christianity for me means, um, first of all, I'm very committed as a person of faith, both because of my tradition, my heritage, where I was born, and also because of my own history as an adult. I'm very committed to 
being within the very large tent of Christianity. The freelance, the freelance aspect of it means that I don't believe that that commitment can be summarized within any particular doctrinal statement or any particular mm. framework that you are required to sign on the dotted line in order to be able to be part of that club or that group. Um, the I often describe the my my visual of Christianity in maybe of most faith traditions is it's a very large tent, like a circus tent, um, mm-hmm. where different groups of people have staked out different parts of the tent for themselves, whether Catholics or Baptists or Presbyterians or Episcopalians or whatever. And I find myself inside the tent, but more or less on the fringes. And I find that my conversations, more often than not, are, are most interesting with those who are on the fringes, but maybe just outside or maybe not sure whether they're attracted, they're fascinated by some things that are going on, on inside the tent, but they are equally appalled by other things that are going on inside the tent. And I more or less, I, I certainly call myself a Christian, but I have been told by many, many, many people and <laughs> commenters on my blog that I really am not one because I don't fit their framework. And so freelance, that word, expresses my insistence, let's say, that one can be a person of Christian faith and not necessarily be placed in the straight ja- in a doctrinal straitjacket. Very interesting. Uh, yes, perfectly resonated with me, um, where uh, many of, of folks uh, also say that I'm not a Christian for holding certain beliefs, uh, not least of these, that the, the earth is not 10,000 years old or the role of, of appreciating science or evolution. Um, and you know what's interesting too, Vance? I, I wonder if you, you find the same place I, I do politically. It seems people tend to want to be at the far end of the tent. And you said the fringes or the middle. I find myself at the, the one wandering around making everyone angry on both uh, religious and political views because I'm not married to the party line. Um, do you share the same political problems? <laughs> well, I do. And here's a place where I find myself frustrated frequently because, um, and I'm old enough to remember when this happened, but back in the 70s and 80s, the very specific conservative fundamentalist evangelical flavor of Christianity more or less co-opted the the political um, stance that has come to be known as Christianity. So nowadays, until I started writing this blog, I was very, very hesitant to tell Mm -hmm. people just uh, flat out that I was a Christian, not because I was not sure about my commitment, but but primarily because I knew what that meant for most people. Mm -hmm. Oh, you must be one of these. these folks, these uh, these conservative funded, you know, people who sign on to conservative political positions, which frustrates me because I I have often said, and, and to be honest, the the most popular, most read, most visited blog post uh, in the ten years almost that I've been writing uh, the blog Freelance Christianity is one that that is titled "I am a." liberal because I'm a Christian, and in which I describe how my own understanding of my Christian faith 
leads me in the direction of political and social positions that um, end up being immediately put in the can in the in the categorization of liberal or progressive, which I'm fine mm-hmm. with. But so many times, and I'm sure you've had this experience, what the pushback is, well, you can't be a Christian and hold this liberal or progressive position. And, of course, right. it is very possible because I'm one. Um, so, anyways, I'd be interested in hearing your own experience with that, too. Yeah, I, I found um, very interesting um, raised conservatives, um, definitely conservative. You know, it's uh, what I've done lately with this is um, I've tried to say um, I'm a um, I'm a, a militant centrist mm-hmm. um, and and but I don't even want to be termed that. I don't even want to be termed a libertarian. I just want to chase after good mm-hmm. ideas. Yeah. And I really don't want to be told what subdivision of the political spectrum or or what particular non-Christian or Christian or, or, or type of dogma that you said. And it seems to be people just, I think, just try to categorize. And, and it's I think it's just a tribal thing. Um, and so I, I've tried to just break down categorizations. I've tried to, like you said, just celebrate the questions and one thing I remember in my early blog, one of my most read ones was um, actually, actually doing um, some diligence on the um, the views of, of 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 Christians polled that believe the Earth is young and old, as well as the view of theistic evolution that's embraced. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting looking at those statistics in the U.S. versus in the U.K. And I think that goes all the way back to this idea of the godless evolutionists back in the old. 1950s, 60s days, and that kind of took hold. That the godless evolutionists, um, that that you almost had to be anti-science to be to be Christian, or vice versa. You had to make these really strong commitments that really force folks to be an atheist, or or really doubt their faith entirely, or struggle with some of the Old Testament. Um, I just wrote a little blog on on the Canaanite slaughter and sort, uh, sort of Peter Enns's work there, even David Bentley Hart's kind of work on on hell and 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 there's all these very fascinating theological views that are lost, I think, when you tribalize um, something politically and 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 also in our faith too. So that's been my problem, and I and I'm just like I said, I find myself ruffling everyone's hair, Vance, and I thought you would appre- you'd have you know you'd feel the same. Uh, if not more, over the years, <laughs> yeah, in my position, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And um, just one example. Now, this this especially resonates because even though I'm not Catholic, I have taught in Catholic higher education for almost thirty years as a non-Catholic, very happily, very successfully. And I was my PhD program. I was educated by the Jesuits, and and. Um, One, of course, flashpoint issue, um, not to be the least bit controversial, of course, but one flashpoint issue across the spectrum, but certainly on a Catholic campus, is abortion. And when somebody tries to force me to put myself into the usual um, preset categories, on purpose, I will say, well, I'm an intelligent um, pro-lifer or I'm a conservative pro-choice person. Take your pick. Just simply to right. uh, to mess up their categories, 
And uh, <laughs> right. I, I think that that's a useful a, a useful exercise on on many occasions, is just to remind people that these categories are artificial, and that mm-hmm. that human beings are very very difficult to categorize fully that way. Absolutely. Actually, in your book, just um, there's this idea, and I forget the philosopher, I apologize, but this idea of atheism as purification, that is so interesting to me. Um, Can you talk about that and then how one, you also talked about how one is a Christian and a philosopher. Can you talk about this idea of atheism as purification and then the word faith, how, how a thinker, how actual Christian thinker might define faith? Two questions there, but related, I think. Sure. Um, atheism is, as a purification comes from Simone Weil, who, um, and this is a long story, which I will not bore you with now, but over time, over my professional career, has become um, the person who I focused on a great deal in terms of my research, and then ultimately in terms of my teaching as well. She's a middle of the 20th century, very interesting, um, and more and more important French Jewish philosopher who would have described herself as an agnostic until she had a number of mystical experiences that she really tried to figure out. But anyways, atheism is a purification, she said, for a person of faith, for a person like myself, born into a religious tradition, where I breathed in that tradition, just like the atmosphere from the time I was born, hmm. atheism says, what if I'm wrong? What if? Um, and for an atheist, I suppose you could say, uh, you know, um, Christianity is a purification, not as if it's a, an attempt to try to convince you otherwise, but just simply saying, what are the best pieces of evidence? What are the best arguments? Mm-hmm that might count against what you just, as a knee-jerk reaction, unthinkingly perhaps, sometimes unreflectively, take as a no-brainer. And so atheism as a purification simply means that it's possible to engage with the world around us as a person with very, very different beliefs in mind, and that engagement can be very, very supportable. And so mm-hmm. I think it's a useful question. Um, well, this is a, a I'll, I'll give you an example. Another 20th century philosopher slash novelist who I find very interesting and who's been influential on me is Iris Murdoch. And Iris Murdoch once said, the best question you can ask yourself is, what are you afraid of? What, hmm. what are your beliefs intended to be a firewall against? And hmm. I, I, I think that that's a useful question to ask because ultimately it, it more or less dissolves those, those barriers and say, this is what I believe. These are the reasons I believe it. And at this point in my life, I'm very, very committed to believing this. But I tell my students all the time, but a great thing to tag in the end of that is, but I might be wrong. But hmm. I have a lot to learn but I'm not omniscient, anything like that that reminds you that doubt and uncertainty are hand-in-hand with faith all the time. So now I I teach at a a college that is under the auspices of the Dominican Catholic Order, 
And so now, 27 years into teaching at this school, I still, I would say probably the majority, maybe 75% of my students are Catholic. We're born into a Catholic tradition. We're raised Catholic. Many of them have had come to the college with 12 years of parochial education. And my work often is to, for the first time, give them the opportunity to ask a question about what they've been told to believe. Not to convince them to believe something different, but to take ownership of what they believe. Mm. And so when I go to go to talk about faith with my students, I often just refer to it as the F word. Because they consider faith to be entirely within, entirely owned by religion. And I say, but no, we act on faith all the time. I said, what does it mean for, well, I will challenge them. Use the word faith in a sentence that doesn't involve God, that doesn't involve religion, that doesn't involve anything Mm -hmm. like that. And usually they'll say something pretty quickly like, well, I have faith that the Red Sox will win the World Series next year. Or I have faith that my friend John will make the right decision when the time comes. And what faith is, just like the book of Hebrews says, whoever wrote Hebrews, the right author of Hebrews says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, is that evidence can take us so far what we experience can take us so far, and faith frequently is the activity of jumping beyond that to something that we hope for, whether it's God, whether it's the Red Sox winning next year or whatever. And so I, I try to demystify faith in the sense that this is not a hmm. special religion-owned activity, but faith is something that any normal human being does all the time. When I stop at a red light and it turns green, I have faith that the people who are 90 degrees uh, perpendicular to me on both sides in their cars are not going to go through the light because I have faith that the light facing them is red while it's green facing me. Now, I might be wrong and I might be broadsided, but we project our experience forward into what we don't know all the time. And, and faith is one name for that activity and once you demystify faith then you can start talking about okay now how does that work within the realm of of a faith commitment a religious commitment yeah you know it's interesting vance as i was writing my my book and even coming to this definition um with with my uh, co-author adam who's an atheist we had a little back and forth and and i took aquinas's sort of reason as the preamble to faith and, uh-huh. and I, I, I'm right with you. It's interesting. I, I have to put some guilt on, 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 on many of our, of, of our Christian tradition that wants to keep reason out of faith. Um, and, and, and that's to, to your point, how I see faith is, is like the marriage commitment where I hope I've can count. I'm making a life decision where I, I've seen evidence. I hope this is the right person, but, um, but certainty is not what I have. It's 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 an it's it's a it's a rational deliberation to speculate um, and weighing out the evidence and um, and that's interestingly it goes into this idea. Your atheism is purification. I called it in my conversation with Adam the movable agnostic, uh, the the kind of the movable middle. Like like Adam, as we have our exchange and we did, 
Atheism is a big deal, and so is any position. I mean, even the God of the philosophers, and I want to ask you about that, I think getting to the idea of of um, the God of the philosophers, and I won't rehash all that for, for our listeners or, or your listeners, I don't think it's that hard if you're philosophically inclined to, to be inspired by the idea of the God of the philosophers. Um, although I have heard good arguments against it, um, I, I am compelled um, for the classical um, theistic arguments of, um, you know, the idea of the, the necessary ground or the, the, the sustaining ground of all that exists. That's not even a time question of, you know, of, of, of temporal, but just ontological necessity of why anything exists. I, I'm inspired by mm-hmm. that. And I think that gets us to an idea of, okay, that now we're not just talking about a rampant, just, you know, faith in maybe the, the sort of um, irrational sort of commitments to something just because the Bible tells me so. We're actually using rationality to ask why does anything exist. So maybe that's a good question to say. If I get to the place, because I'm asked this time, and I think you were asked in your book, how does one be a Christian and a philosopher? Okay, you got me on the God of the philosophers, Vance. How do you get me to Jesus of Nazareth? What's the relation? <laughs> Well, it's it's um, and that particular question how how can you be a philosopher and a Christian at the same time? Which right. came to me, which came to me a good thirty years ago, from a very very um, trusted friend who had no who I had not been in, been in relationship with in terms of con- communication. For five years or so, and in that five years, I had earned my PhD in philosophy. I'd been divorced. I had been remarried, and so she and her husband got to meet my new wife, and and she just threw that question out to me because she knew mm-hmm. me um, as a person of Christian faith, although a person who doubted, a person who didn't fit boxes. But she says, "How can you be?" Uh, and, and her, it was a, a legitimate and a sincere question. It wasn't a challenge from her. And to be honest with you, I don't remember what I told her. <laughs> I'm sure I was relatively dismissive and uninformed. But now, if I were talking to Nancy, that's her name, um, I, I knew then that somehow or another this worked, that you could be a philosopher and a Christian because I was one. But that existential question of how do you put those things together was not something that I had really seriously worked through. Hmm. At this point, I would say that I, I think that philosophy gets me, as you were describing, to a place where I say that it makes sense to say that there is something that greater than us, just to suspect the possibility at least that there's something greater than us that grounds our existence that grounds reality itself and so that's a good i i think that philosophers can get us to that point that's almost like an aristotelian first principle right but then the details of how do you get to jesus as opposed to muhammad as opposed to judaism as opposed to something else i think those details end up being very very personal and I, I can't, to be honest with you, give a, a flat-out, hardcore philosophical argument as to why Christianity 
as to why belief in Jesus is more philosophically supportable than something else. Because I'm not sure that that's what Jesus is about. Um, right. Ultimately, for me, my commitment to Christianity and my commitment to what I think that requires of me as a human being on a daily basis is not an argument. It's a lived experience. And I am grateful for the world that I was born into, which I have challenged, which seems like the from the time I was born. I say either in the, the book that you're referencing or in the ne my next one, that I probably set a record for getting kicked out of Sunday school by the time you were 10 years old in, in Baptist circles, because I was always asking questions like, how can this possibly be true? This doesn't make any sense. But I've learned over the decades that that there are many ways in which things can make sense that don't have an awful lot to do with reason. And so what makes me maybe different than a lot of philosophers you might talk to about this is that I think philosophy can tell us a great deal about the larger framework within which human beings live their reality. And I, I in my 20s, I took a legitimate shot at being an atheist, and it didn't work. Part of it because of my tradition and history, but part of it because I thought that you really can get as far as a ground of being, as, as a likelihood that something greater than us um, is really going on here, and that this isn't just a matter of chance. This isn't just a matter of randomness. But once you start filling in the details, I, I, I don't try to make a, an argument for Christianity as opposed to something else. I basically tell a story and I say, here's how it's worked out for me. And here's right. how I can make these things work together. And if that works for you, great. If it doesn't, then tell me your story. I, I, right. I find that the older I get, and I, I'm getting perilously close in March, I'll be 65 years old. And, and so, you know, I've got a lot of history behind me. The older I get, the more I realize that what I do for a living is telling better and better stories. And I uh, and um, rather than neat and clean, um, precise arguments, I find they can take take people so far. But ultimately, what people want to know is what your story. Yeah. It's true. I mean, I, I, I think of the, the God of the philosophers. I think Aquinas and Aristotle can get you there. Aquinas getting to the God of the philosophers. I think I, I, what has resonated with me when you, you switch to another layer, uh, maybe you, you are leaving now, um, you know, you're leaving this just pure philosophical commitment um, to theism to now maybe I say Kierkegaard may, may take you the rest of the way, maybe historical, maybe existential, but something much more personal um, when you start to talk about discipleship and um, maybe even moral, um, you know, speaking, um, speaking in a very personal way. And that's when I think of the word personal relationship with Jesus. Sometimes I shudder when that's usually how that's framed to others, yeah. but um but yeah, I, I think of it like you do where, okay, Aristotle can get you to this idea of, you know, non-materialism, but to get to, to actually get to, to discipleship has to be moral, has to be existential and, uh, and yes, and historical. I've been in, impressed with that. This is an actual person that did exist. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, 
look forward to actually having Gary Habermas on the podcast just to talk about what he called the minimal arguments of Christianity that, you know, there's, there is an effort of folks to actually uh, deny that an actual historical person that Jesus, you know, didn't even exist, which I think is, is frankly silly according to scholarship, but even, even in the most historical, um, you know, ground you can give, that's not often why someone I think is a, and so I'm, I relate to you more than, you know, <laughs> on that well, I, I, it's interesting that you just mentioned that, but well, a couple of things I'm thinking, first of all, you mentioned Aquinas and of course teaching at Providence college, which is the only college in the country that is run by the Dominican order. Um, there are many that are run by the Dominican sisters, but this is the only one run by the Dominican priests. Hmm. Um, and Aquinas is uh, their guy. And so much their guy that I often describe sometimes to my detriment that on my campus, Aquinas is the fourth member of the Trinity. <laughs> that, that right. Of course, uh, you know, and I also refer to him as the big guy on occasion because apparently he was big physically as well as in terms of influence. But um, I think ultimately, for me, that commitment to Christian faith is, and you mentioned Kierkegaard, I just, I, I just would, would agree with you that ultimately this has to become personal. It has to become something more than an argument. And, and my, my history, my journey has been almost backwards is that I was presented with that framework within which I was within which I lived up until I got out of high school because I didn't have any choice. And then once I became more and more trained as a philosopher, I realized that for me, I had to turn those energies back on my own tradition. And I found that those two things work actually very well together, that I can be a, a very, very critical thinker, I can be a person who insists on logical rigor and yet at the same time realize that precision and logical rigor do not define entirely what a human being is. And so that's why right. I, as I mentioned earlier, why I rely frequently on telling stories is that my right. students want to know not just what, what is the argument, but why does it matter? And often I, often I fall back on it. Matt, here's why it, it matters because here's an example of why it matters because it has mattered to me. And here's how I'm not interested in followers or disciples or, or, um, um, groupies or anything like that. What I'm interested in is empowering students to recognize their own history, their own experience as something that is relevant going forward. But now I try to equip them with the tools to, challenge them and say, it's okay to be uncertain. It's okay to ask yourself, is this thing that I've been handed over the last 18 years supportable? And does it, is it mine? Does it matter to me? And so I, I sell philosophy to my students, not so much as, uh, as a discipline, as an academic discipline, but more as a way of life and say, Philosophy equips you with many of the tools that will make it possible for you to be a lifetime learner, not just in terms of 
reading more things and learning more things, but understanding more and more as you, as you continue about yourself. Right. Yeah. I found that, um, this sounds interesting. My success in business and finances, um, went through the roof in a good way over the years, the more I studied critical thinking and philosophy, because I would ask myself, what's the warrant for this exactly? What, what, would I advise this of someone else? I try, I try to just use just critical thinking and, in all aspects. And then it, it is often hard, Vance, to turn that on your own crit- cherishly held beliefs, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is very interesting. Um, and maybe we can talk about that for a second on you get. So you get to this place where you're now a Christian and a philosopher and you have this lots of voices telling you what is and isn't a Christian all over the place. Um how do you struggle and are you asked um, personally, what do you do with things like, you know, Old Testament, um, Old Testament terror that doesn't look at all like Jesus of Nazareth? What What is this idea of hell? And, you know, there's a fairly prescriptive fundamentalist tradition that you that you mentioned you grew up in where I know that I definitely know the party line. How have you now with topics like these, how has your training as a philosopher and a lifelong questioner, you know, helps you intersect those types of questions. Well, here you get here you're getting back to what I mean by freelance Christianity, in that right. that I was presented the Christian faith within a very very, and I didn't know this at the time, but within a very very narrow and very specific and very rigid framework, and. I mean, I grew up in northeastern Vermont, and so even as a young person, uh, I thought to myself, what are the chances that this church, that this this relatively small group of people, 100 people, 150 people at the most, got it right? And I mean, we were really Hmm. judgmental. Anybody who didn't align with us was going to hell. And there were Catholics mm-hmm. on the other side of town. And that Catholic church, I had no idea what went on in there, but I knew whatever it was, it wasn't good. And I knew whatever it was, <laughs> that these are people that were condemned to hell. And when you begin to break out of that sort of thing, then you begin to ask yourself, okay, what works? What is supportable? What is legitimate? What really resonates with my own experience? And you ask a question, for instance, concerning hell. And we talked about heaven and hell and eschatology and the end times all the time. That's what we were obsessed <laughs> with. And I got to be honest with you. You know, I spend very, very, very little time now and have for a very long time not spent much time on thinking about what happens after I die. I'm concerned more with how does my faith commitment make a difference in how I live tomorrow and what I'm doing today. And even as a young kid, I thought, man, if this being a Christian stuff doesn't make a difference in how, how I'm going to deal with the bully on the playground tomorrow or deal with, you know, fill in the blank in my daily existence as a little kid, then why, why bother with it? So that's always that that kind of embedded day to day thing has always been part of my commitment. And the reason why I'm a Christian, the reason why I continue to be a Christian is because I believe that the faith 
that is described, or, the, or you know, the, the life that is described in the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospels, extraordinarily challenging, but at the same time provides a template that is one worth paying attention to in terms of how to live a life. Now, as to what's going on in the Old Testament, um, I, well, maybe the best thing for me to do is to say this, is that that I frequently have been engaged on my campus with uh, talking with incoming freshmen in the middle of the summer before they show up um, with their parents, with them, and they will often ask a question like, what do I need to be doing now this summer to get myself prepared best for classes here, and we have a very large core curriculum, including a big four-semester course that everybody has to take that's a big sweeping overview of all sorts of things from, from let's say, yoga mass to today. And I say, mm-hmm. one of the best ways you could be prepared is to know your Bible and to know Greek mythology, not as sacred text, but as influential stories. I look at the Old Testament and I say, okay, there are all sorts of things there. My, my dad, who is a Baptist minister, used to say, you know, treat all these things sort of like a spaghetti fight. You know, you throw it at the wall and see what sticks. Or you chew, you know, you, you, just like you would if you're eating meat and found bones inside of it. You eat the fish and you spit the bones out. Is that the God of the Old Testament, to be honest with you, is not a God that I'm particularly interested in signing on the dotted line for. But at the same time, there's so many beautiful things in the Old Testament, hmm. so many beautiful things in the Jewish scriptures. Um, the Psalms in particular, I'm thinking of, the Psalms are as sweeping and as comprehensive an overview of human experience and human psychology as you're ever going to find. And I don't have to figure out how do we get from Yahweh to the God of the New Testament. I don't have to figure that out fully in in order to recognize that there's something valuable here, and there is a connection Mm. from one to the next. And here's a place where I really am not a particularly rigorous logician or philosopher. I simply say, okay, I bring my critical skills and my critical tools to the text and then i say okay what is still valuable even though even if i reject if i say if that's what god is i have no interest but at the same time what can i right. take from this at the same time and are you surprised vance the work of boyd um maybe um peter ends and um even jordan peterson saying um you know freeing yourself up maybe from a literal interpretation um, opens up this opens up all sorts of ideas on um, the idea of narrative, meta narrative, the idea of the psychological in part, the idea of nationalism being packaged to theology. That's interesting to me with the Old Testament, but also as relates to hell. Are you also surprised at the what I see? Lots of scholarship on annihilationism versus um, you know this idea of universal salvation. I'm seeing just an immense amount of attention for people trying to make sense of these really big ideas of hell and 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 how do you be a Christian and take the Bible literally? I guess are you surprised that what I see is a almost an epic 
shift away from a literal interpretation of the Bible? Well, I'm, I'm to the extent that that's happening, I am, I am very pleased by it. I mean, that's the world that I grew up in, is that we were taught to take the Bible as the literal Word of God. And that's one of the places right. I used to get my trouble in, myself in trouble as a little kid. I say, this can't possibly be true. And this conflicts with this. And this contradicts this. And um, the response usually was, well, just believe it and stop thinking so much. And to someone like myself, even, you know, as, as like a, per, as I mentioned earlier, and it sounds like you're the same sort of person, was kind of born with a philosopher gene to say, stop thinking so much is a very bad suggestion. Hmm. But when I learned about, you know, four or five different levels of interpretation, of literary interpretation, literal and analogies and symbolic and all these sorts of things, um, I realized that I'd been resonating with that even when I didn't know the words when I was much younger. But as this Protestant coming out of a world of literal interpretation of the Bible, when I encountered Catholics, I thought, wow, this is really cool, because they never thought that the Bible was supposed to be interpreted just literally. They always were thinking of different ways that you could interpret it, uh, you know, that were analogies that were representative of something else, pointing towards something else. And that's what literary interpretation means. Now, I don't know. If you're intending to ask me, what does it mean to say that the Bible is the Word of God? I really don't have a good answer to that. Hmm. There's something about this text that is special, that is unusual, that points towards something greater. But I also have had the same experience of pointing towards something greater when I read Aristotle when I read Kierkegaard, when I read Simone Bay. And so I'm not, you know, I know what it means for something to be the word of God. I don't know entirely what it means for it to be enclosed between the covers of the Bible anymore. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Um, I, um, I, I, I guess myself, Vance, I, what I've seen when, when people are asked to, to swallow the, the hefty pill of biblical literalism and everything that comes with that. Year 2020, it's getting much more difficult to do that with especially yeah. Internet. Um, I think philosophy now, the big questions, you don't really have to be a scholar to know how old the earth is and to know there might be something to this evolution thing. And wow, that, that God of Yahweh even if I'm a big fan of William Lane Craig, that maybe that doesn't give me cold comfort to just say, well, who are mm -hmm. you to judge God? Uh, may, may, maybe this idea of hell that these folks are writing about, you know, maybe these traditions have served it, have made it very, very difficult to. to so I think what I've seen, Vance, is and I, I and my my uh, Adam and I sparred on this. He goes, well, look, look at all the, the, the non-religious growth. And I joked with with Adam and I said, well, that doesn't mean atheist. That means they're just freeing themselves from this, as you said, very, very, very stringent vantage point. And they may be incredibly, quote unquote, spiritually non-religious. They may be agnostic. Um, they may be um, God of the philosopher, Spinoza's type, you know, Einstein's God. 
right? But they may not be atheists. But but it is interesting. I think this very hard pill to swallow um, has forced folks to really sort of jettison the Christian tradition. And that's sad for me where it served as uh, you, you take it all or none. Um, and I think that, that the Christian, uh, a lot of the, 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 the loudest folks in the tent tend to kind of uh, say you're not welcome in the tent if you, if you believe X, Y, Z. Um, I don't know if you felt that. Yeah, too. what you're just talking about, what you're just describing reminds me a very wise woman, an Episcopal priest who was the closest thing that I had to a spiritual advisor. She just passed away. She died of cancer less than a year ago. But she used to say, when somebody says to me, well, of course, you know, in public sometimes in her official role, she would be wearing her priestly collar. And somebody says, I don't, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. She would say, describe to me the God that you don't believe in. And they would. And she would say, I don't believe in that God either. And that sometimes opens things up because... Frequently, when people say, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, what they're talking about is a very specific description or picture of God that is very, very limiting. I don't believe in the God that I was raised to believe in either. But I'm not an atheist simply because I've, I've come to believe that God is way bigger than the pictures that we make of God. And the the idea yeah. that, okay, if my particular description of God doesn't work, then all bets are off, is I, I, I often think that atheism, really hardcore atheism, a commitment to saying, I know that God does not exist, is just as fundamentalist as the people that I grew up with, is that it's very hard to imagine that kind of certainty about something that is so much greater than we are. Hmm. Yeah, this is interesting, too, um, and this gets a little bit out of specifically religion, but but it is a topic you wrote a little bit about on your blog, and I'd be interested, this idea of the soul. Um, I'll just say consciousness to keep it not religious, but I, I think people know when I when I say consciousness. Do you t Have you taken a uh, – I, I found myself what, – what, 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 where did I read this? We're all raised dualists. <laughs> And then some of us become materialists. I've actually been inspired by the sort of hylomorphic middle, I call it, um, where I don't necessarily want to divorce consciousness separately. Um, so I've been I've been inspired by some of those writers. Um, so I, you know, are, are, how are you? How do you, as both a philosopher and a believer, what do you do with the soul for our listeners? Unconsciousness. <laughs> it's such a huge issue, and it's one, especially on the campus that I teach on, and the students that I have, we talk about this all the time. Yes, I frequently do right. introduce it. I just simply ask them. I say, okay, here's a here's a definition of a human being. A human being is a physical being, a physical body, plus something else. And I ask them, how many of you resonate with that? And they all raise their hand. Their intuition is that, okay, yes, we all know that we're physical beings, but yes, we all want to believe there's something more going on than just that. Now, I am not a dualist. I find Now, I wrote my dissertation in my first book on Descartes, who was a hardcore dualist hmm. as you're ever going to find, but I, I, 
I'm much more inclined in the direction over the years in the direction of Aristotle, hylomorphism and saying that body and soul mm -hmm. are intimately connected. They're not the same, but you cannot separate them out either. And how you flesh that out, um, it, you know, I mean, it, it, that's going to be a very, very individual sort of thing. I do understand, and I, hmm. I, I am willing to give a lot of leeway to a materialist who says everything that you think that you need something more than physical activity to go uh, to explain. I, I think that it, at least in principle can be explained by brain activity, by, and I, I get that. And the brain is the most complicated physical thing we know. And so to imagine that consciousness or, or soul requires something more than that, that might be a leap of faith. I, I, I truly believe that there's more going on than just physical stuff. But at the same time, I incline more in the direction of let's, let's embed soul consciousness in what we are as physical beings because i think that we we the dualist immediately degrades the physical and we are physical beings right and to say that the best that we can imagine about ourselves our consciousness and our reason and all these sorts of things to imagine that they could not possibly be features of something that's just physical immediately demeans and degrades one of the most important things about us, that we are physical creatures. So I'm always wanting to try to walk the tightrope between there's something more going on here than just physical, but I don't want to go as far as saying it has to be non-physical. And so, I mean, that that's really a, a cop-out on my part to a certain extent, but but at least I can put a fancy word on it with Aristotle. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, for me too, Vance, I, I've actually, this is one part of the Catholic tradition that has been inspiring to me. And, and I had um, William Jaworski on the podcast and um, have, def have definitely read a, a, a number of different philosophers. I know Ed Fazer's done some good work too in this area. And I've, where I was is I was, I was always profoundly like, huh. The materialistic picture, there is something really, it seems missing. And and I am, a, you know, I, I biomedical engineer by trade, I, you know, love neuroscience, love psychology. So I, I you know, listen, I, I, I understand the idea of stimulating certain electrodes, um, you know, have correlates to conscious conditions. But the why uh, or, or the aboutness of something, the conscious experience, um, there is something really interesting there. Um, that go that that isn't to your point maybe not a cop-out maybe a conceptual difference but then i'm like well then what do i do with it because the dualist wants to put it somewhere else ontologically um and i mean really somewhere else somewhere in this place um maybe it's in plato's heaven maybe it's you know maybe we're mythically inclined that's why we understand myth. and then it gets really far out maybe what did descartes want to put it in the pineal gland we, we figured that didn't quite cut the mustard but you know so I, I i found that the 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 problems of the materialist and the problems of the dualist i found myself in that centric middle again saying hey i i don't want to deny science or or add something really spooky 
I just want to say we're fundamentally hylomorphic creatures and we tend to have less philosophical problems in that place. As long as we are not um, a priori committed to materialism, that seems to be a, a an open place. Um, and, and I try to say, even if I wasn't a Christian, I think that'd be reasonable. Or even if I wasn't, um, even if I uh, was more agnostic, I still think there's something um, that turns me off about both materialism and dualism. That's kind of how I ended up in this place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah over the years. What you're describing reminds me, and this is a go-to quotation that I use frequently. I've used it probably more times than I should in my blog is fallback that in, in Hamlet, yeah, at the beginning of Hamlet, um, Hamlet is talking with his friend Horatio about the fact that he has just, encountered the ghost of his dead father and Horatio says yeah right and Hamlet says Horatio there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in your philosophy and I always fall back on that and say that philosophy is a wonderful wonderful way to approach reality until you believe that that's all that reality is and that ultimately, hmm. the, the tools that we use, and they're wonderful tools. Uh, I mean, earlier on, you were talking about how, how working with philosophy and being skilled in critical thinking has helped you in your career. Um, at the times when I have been an administrator and run, I ran, ran a very large program on our campus, and we're very committed to the humanities, and this program is very much at the core of that. And... Alums would tell me, alums from Wall Street, alums who have become successful in finance and such, and say, I can teach a new graduate, a new BA or BS, in six months what they need to know in order to be successful in my business, but I cannot teach them how to think critically. I cannot teach them how to tell mm. bullshit from truth. I cannot tell them how to hmm. how to tell the difference between a good argument and a bad one. That's what the humanities are for. And that's what philosophy is for. So it's a, it's a transferable skill. Mm. I often, well, I said this earlier, I don't think of philosophy so much as being a discipline that is trying to establish truth so much as a way of life that is seeking to shine the light on or show or show to people the various tools that we have naturally as human beings in order to become lifetime learners and critical thinking and such is like that. And so when Hamlet tells the ratio that, that that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in your philosophy, it doesn't mean that philosophical tools are irrelevant. I'm not inclined to believe something that I cannot find any kind of evidence to support. But as a person of faith, I'm not inclined to think that mm -hmm. If there's not sufficient evidence of a physical sort to support it, I'm not going to believe it either. I'm always finding myself at that in mm -hmm. that at that tension point. Yeah, this is you know this segues perfectly into your next book here. I think your most recent one, but prayer for people who don't believe in God. Wow, that's a very interesting. I mean, and perfectly relevant to this conversation because I think people are prescriptively sort of commanded to pray and think of a certain way. And I think I even I read sort of your book summary about the you know this being and 
you know, the being in the sky and, and, you know, just talk a little bit about that, Vance, like um, the book and what that's about and just what you were kind of um, for the listeners, just what, what you're going after. That, that, that was an, that was an interesting experience, that book. Um, because it's a fir- first of all, it's the first of my books that I've written um, where the publisher came after me first. Um, this uh, somebody, one or two people on on the staff of the publishing house, apparently had, had stumbled across my blog, and somebody sent me an email. One of them sent me an email and said, "We're really interested in what you say about prayer." And to be honest, I wasn't sure that I remembered having said anything particularly interesting about prayer. So fortunately, I tag all of my blog posts, as I'm sure you do, very carefully with keywords and stuff. So I searched back and I said, okay, I see what they're getting at here. And mm-hmm. what, they, what they were looking for was something that would be from within the large tent of Christianity, something that might take this particular activity that we call prayer and might engage with people slightly outside the tent. And so as they described hmm. to me what they what they thought were thinking about, I said to them, okay, so the working title of this book, and I was doing this tongue-in-cheek, I thought I was kidding. I said, okay, my working title is Prayer for People Who Don't Believe in God. And they wrote back and said, we love that title. So I said, okay, right. Okay, so that's what I work with. So the first, the first five chapters of the book are what prayer is not. Prayer is not transactional. Prayer is not, you know, I mean, you could just fill in the blanks of all the things that we might have been taught as religious people that prayer is. And then the second, the, the other five chapters, the second half of the book is what prayer might be. And what I'm, what I'm working on is hmm. not so much the content of prayer is what does the activity of prayer do for somebody? What am I actually doing? What is a person actually doing when they, when they pray? They're opening themselves up to something greater than themselves. They're opening themselves up to the possibility of something that they cannot nail down, but something that they hope for, and so on and so on. So it's not the title doesn't mean prayer for people who are atheists, but prayer for people who have rejected several specific definitions of God, but are still interested. Hmm. Um, Because every time we try Hmm. to nail down a definition of God, we are trying to limit something that is way above our pay grade, that is way above our expertise. And so that's the sort of thing I'm thinking of, okay? When I believe that what this activity is meaningful, what am I assuming? I'm assuming at least the existence of something greater than me. And maybe even more importantly, I'm assuming the existence of something greater than me who is interested in relationship. And that's the sort of thing that, that, that energized that book. But yeah, it was, it was a, it was a, for me, for an academic, it was a very, very different activity because academics don't often get contacted by a publishing house and say, wouldn't you like to write about this? That doesn't happen very often. <laughs> well, now I'm definitely going to have to uh, uh, read this book because, it, you know, basically the the 
sort of the framework we talked about growing up. I think that's another thing when you talk about prayer being certain prescriptive and not to mention the definition of God that you're praying to, um, you know, it's it, both exercises and even is this yeah. even a God worthy of worship depending on, um, you know, that particular definition of God. But that, that sounds very interesting, Vance. I will definitely, um, I will definitely share that with my readers and listeners and encourage folks to, to get a copy there. And then, um, What's next, Vance, for you now in your in your thought life, in your writing? What's what's speaking to you now? What what should we what look for from you? Well, in the near future. Well, my my um, <laughs> my thought going into my thinking is that my next book project is more or less is more likely to be one that is about the life of teaching. That's about the life because I I have ended up. Cool. And here's here's a place where you could say this was chance. You could say this was uh, this was uh, providence. But I ended up at a place where I have been able to be free to develop all the sorts of things we've been talking about um, without without hindrance. People expect me to engage with possible issues of faith in a philosophy class, whereas if I was teaching at a large public university or whatever, I probably would not be able to do that. And, and so I'm just, I, I, hmm. I want to, because I, I honestly feel that I'm one of those very, very privileged people who have gotten to earn a living and to create a career around what I was born to do. I love teaching at, at my core in a way that it's hard to oversell. And to be able to do it in such a way that helps me develop and helps me empower students to develop um, the capacity to engage with what's bigger than them, as well as uh, their history and tradition and all those sorts of things. It's just been a wonderful thing. And so I'm hoping that that's kind of on my radar screen. My next sabbatical is coming year after next. And so that's kind of what I'm thinking next. But then, you know, there always could be some some publishing house who contacts us. We like what you've been saying in your blog about X. Now, as <laughs> as you might know already, but here's a place I'm returning back to something I was saying earlier, is that I didn't want to be a blogger back, but I found myself back <laughs> in spring of 2009 is when I had a sabbatical where I was away at an in at a uh, ecumenical institute for the whole semester. And I found myself writing essays that just did, they weren't academic. They were much more personal and reflective of how my professional life and my personal life intersected. I didn't know what to do with them. I kept writing them. And finally, several people said to me, you know, what you're writing is something that if it's going to be published, it's going to have to be something that you have to be able to show that there's an audience for it. And to do that, you should start a blog. Mm. And I thought the last thing in the world that I want to do is start a blog. <laughs> and when after about a year and a half of people that I trusted and people who knew a lot about publishing telling me this, I said to my wife, I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to start a blog, and I will do this until it just becomes another damn thing that I have to do, then I'll stop. And that was <laughs> nine and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten two books out of that. And so I, 
I expect that whatever is next is going to be a continue is going to be a, an organic development out of what I'm doing on my blog. And my blog hmm. for me, even though now, when I first started, I'm sure that the only people who read it were my family and a few, you know, maybe a dozen friends. And now I've got a pretty large following. And but still, it I do it because it's spiritual practice for me because it's good for me. And whatever emerges from that is likely to be the next thing. And I mean, the world that we're living in, it's so awesome, bizarre, and it's so challenging in terms of how do you remain a hopeful, faithful person um, in the middle of this uh, has been very challenging, as it is for everybody. And so I'm hope- I, I expect that something like that is going to evolve out of it. Yeah, Vance, for me too, I love how you call it a spiritual practice. I, I look at it, you know, all these big ideas and, and, and you're right. It's a non-trivial exercise committing yourself to writing and writing in a non-sort of academic, <laughs> non-publishable format. But then it's therapeutic in the fact that you're, you're, you're taking the time to, to consider these ideas, consider your thoughts on the ideas, consider maybe how, you know, you do have some readers that are interested in your, your perspective on these ideas. And, and I, I just love that where you're saying it's a spiritual discipline. It's, it's become the same for me. And I've been guilty of definitely immense seasonality, especially amidst this 2020 pandemic and, and work and life, but it, it, it keeps bringing me back. And actually same thing with, with my second book actually birthed from um, another, me and my Pathios neighbor who are now friends and 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 look at look here. I, I get to talk to it, uh, uh, Pathios, uh, progressive Christian, in in uh, in uh, in neighborhood um, resident, and uh, and so that's just been it's just been a privilege chatting with you. And uh, one of these days when the pandemic is over and I find myself in um, in your neck of the woods, would love to well, that uh, would be, that would to be say wonderful. hello. Yeah, that and, would be great. Uh, and meet you in person. Would love to do that. Excellent, Vance. Well, um, thank you very much for your time. I will link your books and the topics we talked about in the uh, in the post, so folks can see and uh, look forward to uh, hopefully having. I've, all, you again I've already told soon. any number of my friends and colleagues that I was doing this today, so I will be sending out whatever you produce to them as soon as it's uh, it, as soon as you let me know. All right. You got Thank it. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Vance. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.